This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and also available on iTunes. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Mark Rotella, senior editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, culinary columnist Coleman Andrews discusses his new memoir, My Usual Table, A Life in Restaurants. Then PW Deputy Reviews editor Gabe Habash gives us a rundown of this year's Pulitzer winners. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list powered by Nielsen BookScan. All right, so on the fiction list, we have a new number three for hardcover fiction. It's Carnal Curiosity by Stuart Woods. This is the 29th novel featuring a New York City attorney named Stone Barrington, and he's one of the smoothest operators around, though he runs into a few rough patches in this particular thriller. Uh, There's a theft of some art despite a high-tech security system, and he needs to draw on all his talents to recover the artwork and lay a trap for the highly elusive thieves. So that's number Number three on our hardcover fiction list. Great. Number four, we have another new one. This is uh, Keep Quiet by Lisa Scottoline, the latest standalone novel from her. And uh, it explores the relationship between father and son in the aftermath of a deadly hit and run. And our reviews, middling, said that twists and turns of the high drama plot come at the expense of character development. But excitement builds nonetheless. Last year, she's coming out with this year with a book uh, written with her daughter. So they're, uh, it's a mother-daughter a memoir, or at least advice for one another. Uh, so she's been writing those as well. Interesting. So yeah. I wonder whether the mother-daughter influences this particular father-son story. Oh, interesting. And finally, I want to go a little bit further down the list to number 25. Usually we, we stay up in the top 10, but right. this particular book is uh, worthy of some interest. It's Can and Won't by Lydia Davis. We gave it a starred mm, review. Great. And it's notable because it's a collection of short stories. And you don't often see those hitting the bestseller list. So this is pretty remarkable. It's her fifth collection. Mm-hmm. Uh, we say that she continues to hone her subtle and distinctive brand of storytelling in poems, vignettes, thoughts, observations, and stories that defy clear categorization. Each one is independent and read together they strike a fine rhythm. There are disgruntled letters addressed to a frozen pea man manufacturer, uh, an alumni review, and a peppermint candy company. Uh, Their story set in 19th century France. It's a real wide variety, but the collection has a cadence, and our review concludes that Davis's bulletproof prose sends each story shooting off the page. Oh, wow. So that's definitely one to keep an eye out for. Oh, it looks great, and good for Lydia Davis, yeah. Yeah, so what's on the nonfiction list? Well, uh, it's kind of fun. Debuting at number three is Paul Stanley's Face the Music, and that's Paul Stanley, guitarist lead singer for Kiss. And this is, this is we, we gave this a really nice review. Uh, he was born with an ear deformity called microtia, which, which uh, the cartilage on the outer ear fails to uh, form properly. And, and, and he was made fun of throughout school. And one wonders if perhaps this was a reason for him to want to put on makeup or to put on something else. Hmm. Um, he, he talks 
talks about uh, the rise of Kiss, uh, where he and Gene Klein, who would change his name to Simmons, uh, uh, Stanley's, uh, Paul Stanley's original birth name was Stanley Eisen. Uh, They started playing a band in high school in the 1970s, and... uh, they just rose right from there. Um, he tells everything. He talks about the road trip to the band, but he really seems to go right to the heart and uh, uh, not just gloss over, uh, you know, not just include the highlights of, of the band trip, but really talk about what he was, you know, what it was like for him being in high school and uh, and then playing with the band. So, and now they are. We're just on the cover of uh, Rolling Stone magazine this past month. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it was the first time Kiss. No, I'm sure they were on before, but this was a. Uh, Big event for them. At number 13, we're just going to go to another celebrity, Rob Lowe, uh, a book called Love Life. Now, he had a bestseller with uh, his previous book, and uh, uh, which was, well, his, his memoir, and it was back in 2011, and mm-hmm. so I think people liked it so much that uh, decided to write another one, and uh just got published uh, last week. One thing that's really interesting, uh, we've got a cookbook on the list, and that's at uh, number 14 uh, from 10 Speed Press uh, by David Leibowitz. And this is called My Paris Kitchen Recipes and Stories. Now, this is the fourth cookbook I've seen come out this season focusing on Paris. Uh, And on this one, uh, he kind of showcases how Parisians cook today. Uh, He says there's a a brigade of younger chefs in Paris who are quietly rebranding French cuisine and in ways updating it to to take it back to its humbler roots. So um, uh, we say this lovely volume is a perfect combination of unexpected and expected dishes, French food personalized and demystified for the home cook in the best ways. And finally, at number 21, Matt Taibbi's The Divide, American Injustice in the Age of the Wealth Gap. So that's what we have for nonfiction. And Taibbi's certainly been in the news a lot in the, the last week or so. He's been saying some very controversial things, and I wonder if that's drumming up some interest. In yeah, people. sure. It could very well be. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Coleman Andrews tells us about his most memorable restaurant experiences. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Coleman Andrews on the line here talking about his new memoir, My Usual Table, A Life in Restaurants. Coleman, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thanks for inviting me. So, as a founding editor of Surer Magazine, former columnist for Gourmet, and editorial director of The Daily Meal, you are no stranger to restaurants, and, and this new book is subtitled A Life in Restaurants. Um, Tell us what that life is like and has been like. Well, um, the, the book came about when an editor asked me if I'd be interested in writing a memoir, and I said, sure, but I didn't want to just do the, you know, I was born, I went to school, I got my first job. That sounded kind of boring, so I, I tried to think of how to organize the the, uh, the book, and it dawned on me at some point that I've spent most of my life uh, going to restaurants uh, from literally the time I was a baby. Uh, my my parents. I got. I say sometimes that I grew up in restaurants. And I I don't mean my parents owned restaurants because they didn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, my dad was a screenwriter, and my mother was uh, kind of what they used to call an ingenue, kind of uh, window dressing in movies. I don't think she ever had a speaking part, but she, uh, you know, she'd get all dolled up and be kind of a featured player in the background. And so uh, they were great restaurant goers because my dad made pretty good money, and my mother couldn't cook. Okay. <laughs> 
I mean, I, I was about 15 before I knew that roast beef wasn't gray inside. <laughs> uh, so, 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 because she was no friend of the kitchen, and uh, you know they they liked the social life in Los Angeles where I grew up. So they went out to restaurants all the time, and they they started taking me with them when I was literally a babe in arms. I mean, there's a photo somewhere of me at Chasen's when I'm all swaddled up in uh, in, uh, in a blanket or something. And because uh, people that know me today think that's a pretty difficult image to imagine. <laughs> There I was. So is that your first memorable restaurant experience, or was there, is there one that particularly stands out to you from childhood? There's not one image that stands mm-hmm. out, but I have this, uh, this picture of what it was like to be in a restaurant. I mean, I remember sitting in a booster seat, uh, so whatever age I would have been, uh, in a booth at, at Chasen's with this. I remember the tablecloths and the glasses and the, all the activity that was going on around me, which I loved. And, you know, you'd sort of walk in from the street, uh, and, and you were really entering another world, uh, and it was uh, a world that smelled good and sounded good, and, and I knew I was going to get something good to eat. Uh, so, so just just in general, I, I think I have these uh, these happy, no doubt romanticized uh, memories of just sitting in a restaurant, even when I couldn't even sit up straight myself. Mm. And well, so what was that restaurant experience that that if it was in fact a restaurant experience that made you decide to uh, you wanted to devote your life to food and to eating? Well, uh, I mean, I have no choice about eating. Uh, you know, everyone does. Uh, <laughs> Let's say I eating just, well. And <laughs> <laughs> no, I you know um, I I didn't make it. I never made a deliberate decision to become a food writer. Um, I started writing because my father was a writer uh, when he was at home, which, which he was often uh, working. He had an office. He'd sit at his typewriter all day long and, and type screenplays. And I just, I saw him do that. And I guess from the time I was a very, very young, I must have just gotten the idea that that's what guys did. You know, I, I've always said if he'd been out in the backyard working on the car, I'd probably have an auto shop by now instead <laughs> of being a writer. Uh, it's just, you know. So I, I just I, I wanted to write, and I started trying to write when I was a kid, and and uh, had a newspaper job at a local paper when I was in high school, and and just when I was in college, um, started actually writing strictly to make some money uh, because I had student loans, which paid for the books and the tuition, but they didn't pay for going out to restaurants. Mm-hmm. So I started writing about whatever I could write about, whatever people would would buy. Uh, I used to look at the writers' magazines and try to figure out what I could uh, put together. And I didn't write about food for, for a while, uh, but then it dawned on me at some point that since I knew restaurants, maybe I could be a restaurant critic. Mm. So that's, that's how I started writing. I started writing for the old L.A. Free Press and then the L.A. Times. Well, you know, one of the, uh, the the restaurants you talk about in your book is, is Trader Vic's, and I've been to L.A. several times. I've eaten at many a restaurant, and I've never been able to go to uh, Trader Vic's. I've always been fascinated by it because since the old uh, Rat Pack days, I, I know they hung out there. Tell us about that experience, as you told about it in your book. Yeah, well, unfortunately, uh, you're not going to have the chance to go because they, right. they moved the one in Beverly Hills to downtown L.A., and that just closed about two weeks ago. So, uh, but, um, Trader Vic's was, you know, this sort of Polynesian. I mean, it was uh, it wasn't the original tiki bar restaurant, but it was one of the original ones, and it was the one that really spread the, the genre around the country and eventually around the world. And uh, it, it was again walking into it, and this happened. I was a little older by the time it opened in Beverly Hills, but. Uh, it, it was even more dramatically than Chasen's. It was leaving the real world behind, and it was going to this 
in walking into this uh, tropical paradise where, uh, again, everything smelled really wonderful. Different smells, though, more exotic. And, and uh, you know, there were these uh, hostesses and these long, flowing uh, floral gowns. And there was a, the man at the front was wearing a yachting blazer and looked very jaunty. And uh, there was, you know, tiki's everywhere and tapa cloth on the walls and a canoe hanging from the ceiling. And, you know, I really felt like I was in the South Seas. And you know, people forget that in the 50s and, and early 60s, the South Seas were really big in America. Mm-hmm. Um, there was the musical South Pacific right. uh, was a hit, both as a, as a play and as a movie. Uh, Thor Heyerdahl had, uh, in the 50s, had, had sailed the Contiki uh, across the Pacific, and uh, there was a book and a movie about that, and there was a TV show called Adventures in Paradise, and, you know, and I bought into that whole thing, so... Uh, so it was just like the, the best I could do. Uh, I couldn't uh, suddenly find myself in Tahiti, but I could find myself at Trader Vic's. And what was the food like? Well, the food was surprisingly good, and I, I can say that because I did go much later in life when I could uh, really tell whether the food was good or not. And uh, Trader Vic himself, Vic Bergeron, was an interesting character who loved to find ingredients that people didn't know. Uh, easily the first place I ever had kiwi fruit. For instance, with the Trader Vic's, he called them Chinese gooseberries, served <laughs> them on a peeled on a bed of ice. Uh, he introduced the world, uh, at least the American diner, to things like limestone lettuce and morel mushrooms. And uh, he not not it wasn't all corny Polynesian stuff. He right. uh, he really liked uh, he liked to find things and and uh, and show them to people, uh, reveal them to people. Uh, he also was an early champion of California wines, having good California wines on his list when every other good restaurant had strictly French. And you talk about going you know, first when you were completely enthralled by this and buying into it, and then going again much later when you could tell whether the food was good. What was the process like of training your palate over those years, of, of going from the sort of wide-eyed enthusiast to the more knowledgeable critic? Oh, it was a very arduous uh, task to, uh, to train. No, I'd actually... <laughs> <laughs> I just... I just sat there and, you know, I, I mean, the great thing about restaurants is you, you sit there and people bring you good things. And I, I guess just little by little, um, I started developing tastes and, and deciding what foods I liked better and which ones I didn't like so much. And, and uh, you know, beginning to uh, get the idea that, you know, this was a good example, even if something as simple as a steak or a piece of chicken, that, you know, this one was good because it was moist and flavorful. And that one over there at that other place wasn't so good. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, it wasn't, a, again, a conscious process. It just sort of, uh, I think it was uh, repetition. They say, you know, you, you do something 10,000 times and you, you, know, you achieve mastery of it. And I, I don't know if I've had 10,000 meals in a restaurant yet, in restaurants yet, but I'm, I'm, I'm working on it. <laughs> So I've, I've found that um, as a critic, I've had a sort of similar experience with books. Uh, isn't they? I started out as this wide-eyed enthusiast, and then I became much more jaded. Um, and and now I really seek out the the surprising experiences, the ones that that get under that sort of jaded feeling and go and make me go, wow, wow, that was really good. Have you had one of those recently since since you uh, entered this period of mastery? <laughs> well, I think the I understand what you're saying about getting jaded and then looking for for different kinds of experiences. But I have to say, I increasingly uh, find comfort in things which are familiar and which I, which are dependable, which I, I know what they're going to be. And um, you know, a very simple meal. Uh, a friend of mine had a bachelor party some years ago, and the menu. He, he's a chef himself and a fellow Californian. And the, the menu was each each person had uh, an entire Dungeness crab 
simply steamed in front of it on the plate, and then uh, there was a nice big piece of beautiful roasted uh, roasted prime rib. And this was a chef who could have done you know all kinds of pyrotechnics, but this was what he wanted to do, and it was simple flavors, absolutely top quality uh, products. And I, I like that kind of eating. Uh, that, that's not to say I, I don't appreciate the uh, the twists and turns. I, I mean, I, I wrote a book, uh, biography of Ferran Adria from El Fugi in Spain, who's the most innovative chef of our of our century, certainly. And uh, you know, he he would serve things that uh, just left you shaking your head, and he had no idea what they were, or or they turned out to be something uh, that tasted very different from what they looked like they were going to be, and. Uh, you know that that was a nonstop series of surprises, but I don't want to do that all the time. I kind of I like the uh, I like the old familiar things sometimes too. Tell us a little bit more about Ferran Adria and uh, El Bulli, uh, about him, his significance, the significance of his restaurant. Yeah, you know it's it's funny. We nobody knows how how these people uh, uh, crop up. Whether it's a writer or a, a composer, or a musician, an artist, or whatever. That there's no logic to. Uh, how certain people suddenly uh, break all the rules and, and they have the inspiration to do it. And you know, maybe it's naivete, maybe it's lack of uh, professional experience at first, and they don't know what they can and can't do. In the case of, of Ferran Adria, he really he looked at, at the food he had been cooking. He was, by all reports, a very good, uh, more or less traditional, modern French-style chef. Mm-hmm. And he looked at that, and uh, after a while he said, well, this is all very well and good, but what else is there? Is this all we can do? And he uh, he started uh, looking at the food and saying, how can we restructure it? How can I change a traditional dish so that it looks completely different and amuses diners but has the same taste or at least it, it evokes the same uh, taste memories? And I mean, he, he just had these, these ideas which are becoming more and more commonplace now because he broke the ground and... and uh, I think uh, it's unfair to dismiss him as the guy that invented foam and food or things like that. These were all things that he did, but those were those were minor uh, tools in his repertoire because he uh, he just wanted to change the way everything, uh, the way we thought about food, the way we approached food, and he's had tremendous influence on other chefs, especially in the sort of haute cuisine uh, area, um, and not because they're copying him, but because they said, oh. Well, he thought uh, originally and, and came up with these ideas. I'm going to use my imagination to think of something else uh, that may have nothing to do with what he did. You've written, Ferran, the inside story of El Bulli and the man who reinvented food we were just talking about. And uh, you've also written four or five cookbooks. How did those come about? My first cookbook came about because I, uh, I was, you know, being interested in food, I... Uh, I used to take vacations with my first wife in, in Europe every summer. We'd go to Italy and France, and I'd, I'd never been to Spain. And one year, uh, we decided to drive down on the Mediterranean side of France into Spain. And I did a little bit of research, and I had the names of some restaurants that sounded interesting. And I, I, I started going into these restaurants in the Catalonia region, and, um, and I, I found this food that I'd never had before. And what was interesting about it was that it had used all the same ingredients that I was used to from Italy or from France, the south of France, but the food tasted different, and they, they were used differently. And I thought, hmm, this is a good magazine story. So I wrote a magazine story. And then my agent happened to say, you know, what's new in, uh, in the food world? And I said, well, I found this corner of Spain that no one really knows much about. And so many of this was now in the, uh, in the early 80s, uh, before Catalonia was, was well known. And um, she got me a book deal, and so I, I wrote a book. 
uh, it was really kind of a uh, almost a journalistic uh, impetus because I saw, I recognized what I thought was a good story, and I thought, okay, I'm, I'm going to try to tell that story. The same thing happened in a very different way many years later with Ireland. Uh, which is not the first place people certainly think of in terms of good food. I was just going to bring that up. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I, though I, I will say I've had one of the best meals of my life in Dublin. So there's, well, there, are definitely, there are definitely wonderful restaurants happening there now. I mean, that was, that was a few years ago, not long. Yeah, there, there certainly aren't a lot of wonderful restaurants, but there are, are some and there's more all the time. And the, the thing that Ireland has to, uh, has to offer is these just incredible raw materials, the, the meats and the dairy products and the, and the seafood and so forth. And, and um, again, I, I, I sort of approached it journalistically. I was uh, in Ireland um, doing a story and I, and I suddenly realized I kept hearing about all these great things that were going on and tasting all this great stuff. And, and I said, you know, like Catalonia was uh, 20-some years earlier, this is an unknown story. People don't know about this. I mean, they certainly know Ireland, but if they know anything, uh, they, they know smoked salmon and Irish stew, and, right. and uh, other and than that. Potatoes. Know, even the Irish make jo- Yeah, potatoes, exactly. 20 ways with potatoes. Um, they, the, old, the old joke is that a, a seven-course Irish dinner is a six-pack of Guinness and a potato. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> Um, but uh, but I found out that in fact there's a tremendous variety if you know where to look. Uh, and of course you were there when the uh, Celtic tiger was roaring. That's right. And uh, at a time when there were a lot of uh, it seemed to be B and B's opening up and maybe more country inns uh, were coming around. So so I do want to talk about Sever. How did that come about? Well, um, I had worked for a magazine as a freelancer called Metropolitan Home, uh, which is now defunct. And the uh, team I'd worked with there, uh, Dorothy Kalins, who was the editor-in-chief, and then our food editor, Christopher Hersheimer, that's a female Christopher. Um, we had just gotten to know each other, and we'd, uh, we'd done a lot of, uh, I got to do a lot of great food stories, I mean, the, the fun food stories, I should say, around the country and, and even internationally for the magazine. And, and at some point, the magazine was sold to another publishing company, and Dorothy left, and I sort of uh, did a few more things for them, and then I left, and Christopher left, and we were all off pursuing other things, and Dorothy was approached uh, by uh, two guys that were starting a new media company, and one of their projects was a food magazine, and they asked her to, to set it up. So she called me, and she called Christopher, and we ended up sitting in a room in, uh, uh, on Park Avenue uh, making up this magazine, just uh, creating what we thought was missing from the food magazine world, which was which was a magazine that dealt with the culture of food and the, and the background of dishes and the history of the people that made the dishes rather than just, you know, 400 great summer artichoke recipes. And now you're at the Daily Meal, which presumably has nothing to do with the Daily Mail. So tell us a little bit about what's going on there. Well, the, the Daily Meal is a website that launched a little more than three years ago, uh, started by a man named Jim Spanfeller, who uh, had been the CEO president of Forbes.com, and a great believer in the value of, of uh, the digital space, and also a believer in the fact that, and this can be argued, but uh, he thinks that it's a disadvantage for a website to be associated with what we call legacy media now. So uh, being attached to a magazine or a newspaper to him is not a good thing, much better if we're, if we're independent. So he launched this company, uh, which will have eventually a bunch of websites. We're the first website. And his idea was with all the food sites out there, the one thing that no one was doing was 
everything. So <laughs> there was no comprehensive site. There were recipe sites, there were restaurant sites, there were home entertaining sites, and there were sites about wine and spirits, but there was nothing that brought it all together. So that's the idea of the dailymeal.com. And I, I sometimes, I'm not sure that he likes it when I do this, but I sometimes describe it as a, a Huffington Post, except that all the stories are about food and drink. So I have one final question for you, and this is the question that I've actually wanted to ask ever since Mark suggested that we have you on the show as a guest. What did you think of the portrayal of restaurant criticism in the film Ratatouille? Is it accurate? <laughs> um, you know, I think the idea people have of restaurant critics being these sort of fatuous uh, snobs and, and uh, so forth is, is not accurate. No, I, I think um, every restaurant critic, every, every serious restaurant critic I've ever known, has shared in common a great love for restaurants and also a, a, a hope that every time he or she goes in and sits down in a new place, that it's going to be good. Um, I can't speak for my counterparts in England because they have a different attitude there, but, but the American restaurant critics I know really uh, always, in my experience, go in uh, positively and hoping that they're going to have a great experience and be able to, to write good things about a good restaurant. And many, many times we are sadly disappointed, and often we're disappointed for really stupid reasons, for, for minor things that uh, would be easy to fix if somebody were paying attention. And uh, so I, I think um, the restaurant critics I know in general are basically pretty good-hearted and, and pretty supportive of restaurants. Well, I'm sure you're one of them. Thank you so much. We've been talking with Coleman Andrews, and you can find his book, My Usual Table, in stores right now. Coleman, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Deputy Reviews Editor Gabe Habash tells you everything you need to know about this year's Pulitzer winners. Stay tuned. Welcome back. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. Today, PW Deputy Reviews Editor Gabe Habish is here with a rundown on this year's Pulitzer Prize. Hey, Gabe. Hey, guys. How are you? Good, Doing good. very well. Very glad to have you here. So give us a little bit of background. I mean, I know everybody's sort of heard of the Pulitzer Prize, and it's just kind of a term that's bandied about. Tell us a little bit about it and about like some of the, the past winners. Just give us a little perspective. Well, so this year, um, they picked Donna Tartt's The Goldfinch, um, which was probably one of the biggest literary books of last year, if not the biggest. It's already sold 400,000 copies on um, Nielsen Bookscan, which tracks 80% of print sales in the U.S. It doesn't track ebooks, so I'm sure the number is a little bit higher. Um, so they, they went with the popular pick this year, uh, about as popular as they could have gone. Um, recently, they've been sort of uh, all over the map. They picked The Orphan Master's Son last year by Adam Johnson, which is a sort of uh, denser novel about uh, the North Korean situation. And uh, the year before that, it was pretty controversial. They didn't pick a prize, which was big news. They hadn't done that in a long time, and everybody was upset about that. And then 2011, it was uh, A Visit from the Goon Squad by Jennifer Egan. And in 2010, it was Paul Harding Tinkers, which was the little engine that could, and from a small publisher, and it has been a huge success story since then. Mm. So, does that always happen that the prize turns a book into a huge success story? Yeah, it's it's uh, pretty bulletproof. Every year, they um, they tend to shoot up, and you know, it's it's proof that the Pulitzer is respected, and people seek out the winner every year. And that was 
one of the reasons why in 2012, when there was no prize for fiction, a lot of people in publishing and uh, booksellers all around the country and librarians were sort of uh, upset that they weren't, that the Pulitzer Committee wasn't driving people to a book because there's enough problems out there now where we can't get people to buy a book, the general reading publics to buy a book. And um, it, it sort of uh, left a, people, a lot of people with a bad taste in their mouth that they weren't they weren't picking a book that year but um yeah it's it's it tends to do gangbuster business for a book that wins it and um even in in like the first week after it's announced like last year the orphan master's son sales went up 500 percent wow um week to week um in 2010 this is actually the most drastic example of this the pulitzer effect in 2010 when tinkers by paul harding one which was from a tiny publisher named bellevue literary press it had sold just a thousand a little over a thousand copies on bookscan before it won the pulitzer and then it's since sold four hundred thousand on bookscan so it's kidding it's and it sold uh it had sales of five thousand copies per week for about 10 months after it was announced so almost a year after the book won the pulitzer it was selling five thousand a week Whereas before it won the the award, it was it sold one thousand total. Wow! Now, does this have the same effect on nonfiction books? We've been talking about fiction books. Uh, it doesn't. So the Pulitzer Awards uh, for fiction, history, biography slash autobiography, poetry in general, nonfiction, and uh, this year we don't have any hard uh, sales numbers to go by since uh, we won't get that till next week. Mm-hmm. But last year's sales um, are just on a much smaller scale outside of fiction so you'll see percent increases that are that rival fiction but the numbers are just so much lower so for instance looking at last year's numbers the orphan master son the fiction winner went from 400 copies sold before the announcement of it of its uh winning the pulitzer to 2500 and that's a, so that's a 500 percent increase mm-hmm. um the book embers of war uh, to put it in perspective, which won the hi- the history Pulitzer last year, went from 40 copies to 353. So mm. it went to 353 copies after winning, and Orphan Masterson had already was already selling above that before the win. Mm. And so you know you're looking at eight to ten times right. the scale with fiction, and you know like um, with poetry, it's it's low, and uh, with biography, it tends to be kind of low unless they pick a name. Um, so yeah, the fiction is definitely the biggest beneficiary of the of the award for sure. But Tart's already sold a great many copies. That's was what I said earlier. Her book, she didn't really need the help. Um, so like for instance, when they pick something like Tinkers, which nobody had heard of before the win, it's just sort of out of left field, and everybody rushes out to buy the book. I think based on curiosity factor, like what is this book that the Pulitzer thinks is so great and deserves to win. And uh, with Donna Tart, you know, she's already sold 400,000 copies since the book pubbed in, I think, uh, October last year. And so I'm not sure how many more people are going to be rushing out to buy the book. I'm sure some, Mm -hmm. for sure, because it's the Pulitzer. But um, I think a lot of the people who uh, are going to read the book have already read the book right and this this is one of the first times that the uh the pulitzer has picked such a big book for its winner especially in in fiction and we were talking before about cormac mccarthy's uh the road uh which uh, which was uh, a big book though uh maybe only after it was an oprah pick 
Yeah, so the, that's actually really uh, interesting because in terms of other literary prizes, the Pulitzer is definitely the, the strongest booster to sales. Mm-hmm. It, it tops things like the National Book Award. And for, for an example, the last, year, last year's winner of uh, the Fiction National Book Award, The Good Lord Bird by James McBride, that book has sold 47,000 copies since, mm-hmm. since to, to date. Mm-hmm. So, um, and for instance, uh, a back, uh, a book that won, um, a Pulitzer a few years ago, um, a visit from the goon squad that's for sold 400,000. So you're just looking at a one tenth scale in terms of sales. And obviously the good Lord bird is a lot more recent than a visit from the goon squad, but it's, it's not going to reach the sales numbers that mm-hmm. a visit from the goon squad will now to put prizes in perspective, uh, like you said, The Road by Cormac McCarthy was the Pulitzer winner a few years back, and around the same time, uh, it was an Oprah Book Club selection. And um, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but the the, the thing that I found through uh, looking through Nielsen numbers is that the the boost that Oprah gave the book was just massive. And mm-hmm. the Pulitzer did help, but part of it is because the Oprah announcement happened before the Pulitzer announcement. So people were already buying it, but the boost that the Pulitzer gave Cormac McCarthy's book was just a much smaller boost than mm-hmm. Oprah. So, you know, recent Oprah picks like Cheryl Strayed, uh, wild was, is, you know, everybody knows that book now. And that's largely because of the Oprah selection. And, um, you know, Franzen has a lot to, a lot of thanks to be giving, Oprah right. for the same reason, you know, she, right. she did a lot for his career, even though he says bad things about her sometimes, but, <laughs> or, or just didn't want her uh, sticker. On That's his, right. His book. That's right. Exactly. I think he begrudgingly <laughs> took the money. <laughs> so uh, let's just talk about that, that, uh, two years ago, I guess you said was when, uh, they did not hand out an award for, right. for fiction. How much do we know about the process and why did that happen? Did it not, did they just not agree on, on a book and therefore decided to uh so uh, yeah they pick three uh jurors every year um or judges i'm not sure the exact term that they pick from they pick experts this year one of the one of the uh members was uh ron charles from uh washington post so they pick critics um they pick experts in the field and they submit three books to the pulitzer committee and they read the books and decide which one wins out of the three so, um, I mean, the, the process is fairly transparent, um, but uh, I think a lot of people were still upset that, they, that the Pulitzer Committee, and three books were given to the committee in 2012. It was uh, Swamplandia by Karen Russell, mm-hmm. The Pale King by David Foster Wallace, and um, Train Dreams by Dennis Johnson. Mm-hmm. And those three books were submitted to the committee, and the committee just de- decided that none of them were deserving of the prize. Wow. And that just really right. ruffled a lot of feathers. Sure, sure. Um, not only, and it, the people didn't really have an issue with a specific book not getting picked, like, oh, this was the book that should have won the poll. It was just that they didn't pick anything, and that there were just so many books that right. many people could have argued one way or another for one book or another book, and that the committee just couldn't decide that one was worth it was uh yeah and, and none of those books were a uh, as it were a slouch in right. any category right I mean, they, they picked were, some big names too right and they exactly. gave them to them and then the committee just said no wow but it's happened before so uh but i think a lot yeah. of people were just really happy this year that 
to have a, a winner because that's so that's still uh in people's recent memories it's, it yeah. still stings yeah. a little bit something's better than nothing for sure yeah and what's interesting about donna tart is you know her first book uh was published when she was right out of if i remember correctly right out of bennington so she's had a long writing career and has had i think three books now right three novels I think correct three right. yeah and yeah. she she takes her time writing them uh yeah, I think the secret history was like early '90s, like '92 right. maybe, and then she had the little friend uh, about ten years later, and then this is another uh, ten years later. So she's she's had about three books in twenty years, and they're all big big events, and that's sure. why um, it's just a little bit. Uh, I don't want to say disappointing, but um, I just do wish that they went a little bit more in the direction of something like Tinkers mm-hmm. or um, you know orphan master son like adam johnson had written a number of books before that and he was largely obscure in the general reading consciousness and then he won and it was a deserving book and you know now every book he's going to put out is going to get a lot of attention deservedly so um and i'm not sure that donna tart really needs much help Mm -hmm. in terms of selling books and you know the ten thousand dollar prize you get i don't think it really makes much of a difference there either (laughs) right so uh, but you know, congrats to her, and I know everybody's really, really uh, happy about having a winner over not having a winner. Sure, of course. Does uh, do people get a, a boost from being a nominee, from being one of those top three books, or is it really just the winner who gets all you, the sales numbers? We did see a bump in 2012 when there was no winner. The three books, uh, Pale King, Train Dreams, and um, Swamplandia, did see a modest boost because it was just such a big story that there wasn't a winner and they were like, Oh, well these three books were the closest thing we had to a winner. So, um, there was a little bit of a boost. I think a, a couple of the books went up a couple hundred percent. Um, but it wasn't like, it wasn't anything like tinkers where, you know, it was 5,000 copies a week right. for 10 months after, you know, like right. after a couple of weeks, the sort of news story passed and, um, you know, they could just put the Pulitzer finalist sticker on the books and not the winner. And that right. I think sort of, took over a little after a little bit but and how about this year do we have any sense i mean i I guess the have the finalists been out for a while been known for a while or is it all announced at the same time it's all announced at the same time i think they keep the the process pretty guarded until the winners are announced and um they actually operate a little bit differently than most other major prizes uh and actually books the other major the other probably biggest prize out there the national book awards are actually becoming more transparent and more extensive in their coverage they've broadened their long list and short list and um they release their finalists way in advance and um i'm not really sure about the pulitzer's history and why they don't release finalists ahead of time um because that would be good for the books and you know would drive a conversation and people would probably go out and buy them if they knew a month or two in advance that these three books were finalists oh let me see what let me see what these books are about and uh maybe try to read one of them mm-hmm. and you know instead they release all three they release the winner and the two finalists um right at the right at the same time right when they announce the winner and i think the two finalists this year is the woman who lost her soul and the son um, which are both great books also, uh, are kind of just sort of like pushed aside and dwarfed by the announcement of the winner. So that's a little bit um, confusing. I'm not sure why they do that and why they don't they don't release finalists in advance because there's really not a reason to do that. Yeah. But 
uh, the Pulitzer always does it a little bit differently, I guess. Yeah. So, and that was is uh, be interesting to see next week once uh, we've had a week's worth of sales in uh, Nielsen Bookscan to see how well, uh, not only to see how uh, uh, Donna Tartt's book fared, but also how the nonfiction books fared. Right. Well, yeah, and in, just to put it in perspective, like in terms of what the numbers are with Donna Tartt, she sold seven thousand copies last week, mm. and that was before the announcement and. You know, a lot of books, especially literary books, are lucky to sell 7,000 copies in their entire print run. Right. So right. I'm yeah. sure she's going to be at the top of the bestseller list sure. for sure. Sure. All right. Well, we'll be looking forward to that. Thank you very much, Gabe. Thanks, guys. Always nice to have you here. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. You can find this in every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio on our website at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and on iTunes, available for you to listen absolutely free. Check the site every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 